And now, the conclusion of H. Ryder Haggard's King Solomon's Mines, Chapter 19, Ignosi's Farewell. Ten days from that eventful morning found us once more in our old quarters at Lou, and, strange to say, but little the worse for our terrible experience, except that my stubbly hair came out of that cave about three shades grayer than it went in, and that good never was quite the same after Fulata's death, which seemed to move him very greatly. I am bound to say that, looking at the thing from the point of view of an oldish man of the world, I consider her removal was a fortunate occurrence, since, otherwise, complications would have been sure to ensue. The poor creature was no ordinary native girl, but a person of great, and I had almost said stately beauty, and of considerable refinement of mind. I need hardly state that we never again penetrated into Solomon's treasure chamber. After we had recovered from our fatigues, a process which took us forty-eight hours, we descended into the great pit in the hope of finding the hole by which we had crept out of the mountain, but with no success. To begin with, rain had fallen and obliterated our spoor, and what is more, the sides of the vast pit were full of ant-bear and other holes. It was impossible to say to which of these we owed our salvation. We also, on the day before we started back to Lou, made a further examination of the wonders of the stalactite cave, and, drawn by a kind of restless feeling, even penetrated once more into the chamber of the dead, and, passing beneath the spear of the white death, gazed with sensations which it would be quite impossible for me to describe at the mass of rock which had shut us off from escape, thinking the while of the priceless treasures beyond, of the mysterious old hag whose flattened fragments lay crushed beneath it, and of the fair girl of whose tomb it was the portal. I say gazed at the rock, for examine as we would, we would find no traces of the join of the sliding door. Not, indeed, could we hit upon the secret, now utterly lost, that worked it, though we tried for an hour or more. It was certainly a marvelous bit of mechanism, characteristic in its massive and yet inscrutable simplicity, of the age which produced it, and I doubt if the world has such another to show. At last we gave it up in disgust, though if the mass had suddenly risen before our eyes, I doubt if we should have screwed up courage to step over Gagool's mangled remains, and once more enter the treasure chamber, even in the sure and certain hope of unlimited diamonds. And yet I could have cried at the idea of leaving all that treasure, the biggest treasure probably that has ever in the world's history been accumulated in one spot. But there was no help for it. Only dynamite could force its way through five feet of solid rock. And so we left it. Perhaps in some remote, unborn century, a more fortunate explorer may hit upon the open sesame and flood the world with gems. But myself, I doubt it. Somehow, I seem to feel that the millions of pounds worth of gems that lie in the three stone coffers will never shine round the neck of an earthly beauty. They and Fulata's bones will keep cold company till the end of all things. With a sigh of disappointment, we made our way back, and next day started for Lou. And yet it was really very ungrateful for us to be disappointed, for, as the reader will remember, I had, by a lucky thought, taken the precaution to fill the pockets of my old shooting coat with gems before we left our prison house. 
"'A good many of these fell out of the course of our roll down the side of the pit, "'including most of the big ones, which I had crammed in on the top. "'But, comparatively speaking, an enormous quantity still remained, "'including eighteen large stones ranging from about one hundred to thirty carats in weight. "'My old shooting coat still held enough treasure to make us all, "'if not millionaires, at least exceedingly wealthy men.' and yet to keep enough stones each to make the three finest sets of gems in Europe. So we had not done so badly. On arriving at Lou, we were most cordially received by Ignosi, whom we found well, and busily engaged in consolidating his power, and reorganizing the regiments which had suffered most in the great struggle with Twala. He listened with breathless interest to our wonderful story, but when we told him of old Gagool's frightful end, he grew thoughtful. "'Come hither,' he called, to a very old Induna counselor, who was sitting with others in a circle round the king, but out of earshot. The old man rose, approached, saluted, and seated himself. "'Thou art old,' said Ignosi. "'Aye, my lord the king. Tell me, when thou wast little, didst thou know Gagool the witch-doctress?' "'Aye, my lord the king.' "'How was she then, young, like thee?' "'Not so, my lord the king. "'She was even as now, old and dried, very ugly, and full of wickedness. "'She is no more. She is dead. "'So, O king, then is a curse taken from the land. "'Go!' "'Coom! I go, black puppy, who tore out the old dog's throat.' Coom. "'Ye see, my brothers,' said Ignosi, "'this was a strange woman, and I rejoice that she is dead. She would have let ye die in the dark place, and mayhap afterwards she had found a way to slay me as she found a way to slay my father, and set up Twala, whom her heart loved, in his place. Now go on with the tale. Surely there never was the like.' After I had narrated all the story of our escape, I, as we had agreed between ourselves that I should, took the opportunity to address Ignosi as to our departure from Kukuanaland. And now, Ignosi, the time has come for us to bid thee farewell, and start to seek once more our own land. Behold, Ignosi, with us thou camest a servant, and now we leave thee a mighty king. If thou art grateful to us, Remember to do even as thou didst promise, to rule justly, to respect the law, and to put none to death without a cause. So shalt thou prosper. Tomorrow, at break of day, Ignosi, wilt thou give us an escort who shall lead us across the mountains? Is it not so, O king? Ignosi covered his face with his hands for a while before answering. My heart is sore, he said at last. "'Your words split my heart in twain. "'What have I done to ye in Kubu, Makumazan, and Pagwan, "'that ye should leave me desolate? "'Ye who stood by me in rebellion and in battle, "'will ye leave me in the day of peace and victory? "'What will ye? "'Wives? "'Choose from out the land, "'a place to live in. "'Behold, the land is yours as far as ye can see.' THE WHITE MAN'S HOUSES? YE SHALL TEACH MY PEOPLE HOW TO BUILD THEM. CATTLE FOR BEEF AND MILK, 
"'Every married man shall bring ye an ox or a cow. "'Wild game to hunt? "'Does not the elephant walk through my forests "'and the river horse sleep in the reeds? "'Would ye make war? "'My regiments wait your word. "'If there is anything more that I can give, "'that I will give ye. "'Nay, Ignosi, we want not these things,' I answered. "'We would seek our own place.' "'Now do I perceive,' said Ignosi, bitterly and with flashing eyes, "'that it is the bright stones that ye love more than me, your friend. "'Ye have the stones. "'Now would ye go to Natal and across the moving black water and sell them and be rich, "'as it is the desire of the white man's heart to be. "'Cursed for your sake be the stones, and cursed he who seeks them. "'Death shall it be to him who sets foot in the place of death to seek them. "'I have spoken, white men. Ye can go.' "'I laid my hand upon his arm. "'Ignosi,' I said, "'tell us, when thou didst wander in Zululand "'and among the white men in Natal, "'did not thine heart turn to the land thy mother told thee of, "'thy native land, where thou didst see the light?' "'and play when thou wast little, "'the land where thy place was? "'It is even so, Makumazan. "'Then does our heart turn to our land "'and to our own place?' "'Then came a pause. "'When Ignosi broke it, "'it was in a different voice. "'I do perceive that thy words are, "'now as ever, wise and full of reason, Makumazan. That which flies in the air loves not to run along a ground. Well, ye must go, and leave my heart sore, because ye will be as dead to me, since from where ye will be no tidings can come to me. But listen, and let all the white men know my words. No other white man shall cross the mountains, even if any may live to come so far. I will see no traitors with their guns and rum. My people shall fight with the spear, and drink water, like their forefathers before them. I will have no praying men, to put fear of death into men's hearts, to stir them up against the king, and make a path for the white men who follow to run on. If a white man comes to my gates, I will send him back. If a hundred come, I will push them back. If an army comes, I will make war on them with all my strength. "'and they shall not prevail against me. "'None shall ever come for the shining stones. "'No, not an army, "'for if they come I will send a regiment "'and fill up the pit "'and break down the white columns in the caves "'and fill them with rocks, "'so that none can come even to that door "'of which ye speak, "'and whereof the way to move it is lost. "'But for thee three, "'Ikubu, Makumazan, and Bagwan, "'the path is always open, for behold, ye are dearer to me than aught that breathes. And ye would go. Infidus, my uncle, and my Induna shall take thee by the hand and guide thee with a regiment. There is, as I have learnt, another way across the mountains that he shall show ye. Farewell, my brothers, brave white men. See me no more, for I have no heart to bear it. 
Behold, I make a decree, and it shall be published from the mountains to the mountains. Your names, in Kubu, Makumazan, and Bhagwan, shall be as the names of dead kings, and he who speaks them shall die. So shall your memory be preserved in the land forever. Go now, ere my eyes rain tears like a woman's. At times, when you look back down the path of life, or when ye are old and gather yourselves together to crouch before the fire, because the sun has no more heat, ye will think of how we stood shoulder to shoulder in that great battle that thy wise words planned, Makumazan, of how thou wast the point of that horn that galled Twala's flank, Bhagwan, whilst thou stoodest in the ring of the greys in Kubu, and men went down before thine axe like corn before a sickle. Aye, and of how thou didst break Twala's strength, and bring his pride to dust. Fare ye well forever in Kubu, Makumazan, and Bhagwan, my lords and my friends. He rose, looked earnestly at us for a few seconds, and then threw the corner of his carass over his head so as to cover his face from us. We went in silence. Next day at dawn, we left Lou, escorted by our old friend Infidus, who was heartbroken at our departure, and the regiment of buffaloes. Early as the hour was, all the main street of the town was lined with multitudes of people who gave us their royal salute as we passed at the head of the regiment, while the women blessed us having rid the land of Twala, throwing flowers before us as we went. It really was very affecting, and not the sort of thing one is accustomed to meet with from natives. One very ludicrous incident occurred, however, which I rather welcomed, as it gave us something to laugh at. Just before we got to the confines of the town, a pretty young girl, with some beautiful lilies in her hand, came running forward and presented them to Good. Somehow they all seemed to like Good. I think his eyeglass and solitary whiskers gave him a fictitious value. And then said she had a boon to ask. Speak on. Let my lord show his servant his beautiful white legs, that his servant may look on them, and remember them for all her days, and tell of them to her children. His servant has traveled four days' journey to see them, for the fame of them has gone throughout the land. I'll be hanged if I do, said Good, excitedly. Come, come, my dear fellow, said Sir Henry. You can't refuse to oblige a lady. I won't, said Good, obstinately. It is positively indecent. However, in the end, he consented to draw up his trousers to the knee, amidst notes of rapturous admiration from all the women present, especially the gratified young lady, and in this guise he had to walk till we got clear of the town. Good's legs will, I fear, never be so greatly admired again. Of his melting teeth, and even of his transparent eye, they wearied more or less, but of his legs, never. As we traveled, Infidus told us that there was another pass over the mountains to the north of the one followed by Solomon's great road, or rather that there was a place where it was possible to climb down the wall of cliff that separated Kukuanaland from the desert, and was broken by the towering shapes of Sheba's breast. It appeared, too, that rather more than two years previously, a party of Kukuana hunters had descended this path into the desert in search of ostriches whose plumes were much prized among them for war headdresses, and that in the course of their hunt 
They had been led far from the mountains, and were much troubled by thirst. Seen, however, trees on the horizon, they made towards them, and discovered a large and fertile oasis of some miles in extent, and plentifully watered. It was by way of this oasis that he suggested that we should return, and the idea seemed to us a good one, as it appeared that we should escape the rigors of the mountain pass, and as some of the hunters were in attendance to guide us to the oasis, and as some of the hunters were in attendance to guide us to the oasis, from which, they stated, they could perceive more fertile spots far away in the desert. Traveling easily on the night of the fourth day's journey, we found ourselves once more on the crest of the mountains that separate Kukuwana land from the desert, which rolled away in sandy billows at our feet, about twenty-five miles to the north of Sheba's breast. At dawn on the following day, we were led to a commencement of a precipitous descent, by which we were to descend the precipice and gain the desert two thousand and more feet below. Here we bade farewell to that true friend and sturdy old warrior, Infidus, who solemnly wished all good upon us, and nearly wept with grief. Never, my lords, he said, shall mine old eyes see the like of ye again. Ah! the way that Inkubu cut down his men in battle. Ah, for the sight of that stroke with which he swept off my brother Twala's head. It was beautiful. I may never hope to see such another, except perchance in happy dreams. We were very sorry to part from him. Indeed, Good was so moved that he gave him as a souvenir. What do you think? An eyeglass. Afterwards we discovered that it was a spare one. Infidus was delighted, foreseeing that the possession of such an article would enormously increase his prestige, and after several vain attempts, actually succeeded in screwing it into his own eye. Anything more incongruous than the old warrior looked with an eyeglass, I never saw. Eyeglasses don't go well with leopard-skin cloaks and black ostrich plumes. Then, having seen that our guides were well laden with water and provisions, and having received a thundering farewell salute from the buffaloes, we wrung the old warrior's hand and began our downward climb. A very arduous business it proved to be, but somehow that evening we found ourselves at the bottom without accident. "'Do you know,' said Sir Henry that night, as we sat by our fire and gazed up at the beetling cliffs above us, "'I think that there's worse places than Kukuwana land in the world.' "'and that I've spent unhappier times than the last month or two, "'although I've never spent such, such queer ones. "'Eh, you fellows? "'I almost wish I were back,' said Good, with a sigh. "'As for myself, I reflected that all's well that ends well, "'but in the course of a long life of shaves, "'I never had such close shaves as those I had recently experienced. "'The thought of that battle still makes me feel cold all over, "'and as for our experience in the treasure chamber,' Next morning we started on a toilsome march across the desert, having with us a good supply of water carried by our five guides, and camped that night in the open, starting again at dawn on the morrow. By midday of the third day's journey we could see the trees of the oasis of which the guides spoke, and by an hour before sundown we were once more walking upon grass and listening to the sound of running water. Chapter 20 and the Last Chapter found. 
"'and now I come to perhaps the strangest thing "'that happened to us in all that strange business, "'and one which shows how wonderfully things are brought about. "'I was walking quietly along, "'some way in front of the other two, "'down the banks of the stream, "'which ran from the oasis till it was swallowed up "'in the hungry desert sands, "'when suddenly I stopped and rubbed my eyes, "'as well I might. "'There, not twenty yards in front, "'placed in a charming situation,' "'under the shade of a species of fig-tree, "'and facing to the stream, "'was a cozy hut "'built more or less on the kaffir principle "'of grass and withes, "'only with a full-length door "'instead of a bee-hole. "'What the dickens?' "'said I to myself. "'Can a hut be doing here?' "'Even as I said it, "'the door of the hut opened, "'and there limped out of it "'a white man clothed in skins "'and with an enormous black beard.' "'I thought that I must have got a touch of the sun. "'It was impossible. "'No hunter ever came to such a place as this. "'Certainly no hunter would ever settle in it. "'I stared, and stared, and so did the other men, "'and just at that juncture, Sir Henry and Good came up. "'Look here, you fellows,' I said. "'Is that a white man, or am I mad?' "'Sir Henry looked, and Good looked, "'and then all of a sudden, "'The lame white man with the black beard gave a great cry "'and came hobbling towards us. "'When he got close, he fell down in a sort of a faint. "'With a spring, Sir Henry was by his side. "'Great powers!' he cried. "'It's my brother, George!' "'At the sound of the disturbance, "'another figure, also clad in skins, emerged from the hut, "'with a gun in his hand, and came running towards us. "'On seeing me, he too gave a cry.' Macumazan, he hallowed. Don't you know me? Boss, I'm Jim. I'm Jim the hunter. I lost the note you gave me to give to the boss, and we've been here nearly two years. And the fellow fell at my feet and rolled over and over, weeping for joy. You careless scoundrel, I said. You ought to be well hided. Meanwhile, the man with the black beard had recovered and got up and he and Sir Henry were pump-handling away at each other, apparently without a word to say. But whatever they had quarreled about in the past, I suspect it was a lady, although I never asked. It was evidently forgotten now. "'My dear old fellow,' burst out Sir Henry at last, "'I thought that you were dead. I've been over Solomon's Mountains to find you, and now I come across you perched in the desert like an old, like an old vulture.' "'I tried to go over Solomon's Mountains nearly two years ago,' was the answer, spoken in the hesitating voice of a man who has had little recent opportunity of using his tongue. "'But when I got here, a boulder fell on my leg and crushed it, and I've been able to go neither forward nor back.' Then I came up. "'How do you do, Mr. Neville?' I said." "'Do you remember me?' "'Why,' he said, "'isn't it Quartermain, eh? "'And good, too! "'Hold on a minute, you fellows. I'm, "'I'm getting dizzy again. "'It is all so very strange, "'and what a man has seized to hope, "'so very happy.' "'That evening, over the campfire, "'George Curtis told us his story, "'which, in its way, was almost eventful as ours.' "'and amounted shortly to this. "'A little short of two years before, "'he had started from Sitanda's crawl "'to try and reach the mountains. 
"'as for the note I'd sent him by Jim. "'That worthy had lost it, "'and he had never heard of it till today. "'But acting upon information he had received from natives, "'he made, not for Sheba's breast, "'but for the ladder-like descent of the mountains "'down which we had just come, "'which was clearly a better route "'than that marked in old Dom Sylvester's plan. "'In the desert he and Jim suffered great hardships. "'Finally they reached this oasis,' where a terrible accident befell George Curtis. On the day of their arrival, he was sitting by the stream, and Jim was extracting the honey from the nest of a stingless bee, which is to be found in the desert, on the top of the bank immediately above him. In so doing, he loosed a great boulder of rock, which fell upon George Curtis's right leg, crushing it frightfully. From that day, he had been so dreadfully lame that he had found it impossible to go either forward or back, and had preferred to take chances of dying in the oasis to the certainty of perishing in the desert. As for food, however, they had got on pretty well, for they had a good supply of ammunition, and the oasis was frequented, especially at night, by large quantities of game, which came there for water. These they shot, or trapped in pitfalls, using their flesh for food, and after the clothes wore out, their hides for covering. And so... He ended, We have lived for nearly two years, like a second Robinson Crusoe and his man Friday, hoping against hope that some natives might come here and help us away. But none have come. Only last night we settled that Jim should leave me and try to reach Satanda's crawl and get assistance. He was to go tomorrow, but I had little hope of ever seeing him back again. And now you, of all people in the world, you, who I fancied had long ago forgotten all about me and were living comfortably in old England, turn up in a promiscuous way and find me where you least expected. It is the most wonderful thing I've ever heard of, and the most merciful, too. Then Sir Henry set to work and told him the main facts of our adventures, "'sitting till late in the night to do it. "'By Jove!' he said, "'when I showed him some of the diamonds. "'Well, at least you have something for your pains "'besides my worthless self.' "'Sir Henry laughed. "'They belong to Quartermain and Good. "'It was part of the bargain "'that they should share any spoils there might be.' "'This remark set me thinking, "'and having spoken to Good, "'I told Sir Henry that it was our unanimous wish.' "'that he should take a third share of the diamonds, "'or if he would not, "'that his share would be handed to his brother, "'who had suffered even more than ourselves "'on the chance of getting them. "'Finally, we prevailed upon him "'to consent to this arrangement, "'but George Curtis did not know of it "'till some time afterwards. "'And here, at this point, "'I think I shall end this history. "'Our journey across the desert "'back to Sitanda's crawl was most arduous, especially as we had to support George Curtis, whose right leg was very weak indeed, and continually threw out splinters of bone. But we did accomplish it somehow, and to give its details would only be to reproduce much of what happened to us on the former occasion. Six months from the date of our re-arrival at Satanda's, where we found our guns and other goods quite safe, though the old scoundrel in charge was much disgusted at our surviving to claim them, saw us all once more safe and sound at my little place on the Berea, near Durban, where I am now writing, 
and whence I bid farewell to all who have accompanied me throughout the strangest trip I ever made in the course of a long and varied experience. Just as I had written the last word, a kafir came up my avenue of orange trees with a letter in a cleft stick which he had brought from the post. It turned out to be from Sir Henry, and as it speaks for itself, I give it in full. Brayley Hall, Yorkshire. My dear Quartermain, I sent you a line a few mails back to say that the three of us, George, Good, and myself, fetched up all right in England. We got off the boat at Southampton and went up to town. You should have seen what a swell Good turned out the very next day. Beautifully shaved, frock coat fitting like a glove, brand new eyeglass, etc., etc. I went and walked in the park with him where I met some people I know and at once told them the story of his beautiful white legs. He is furious, especially as some ill-natured person has printed it in a society paper. To come to business, Good and I took the diamonds to streeters to be valued, as we arranged, and I am really afraid to tell you what they put them at. It seems so enormous. They say that, of course, it is more or less guesswork, as such stones have never, to their knowledge, been put on the market in anything like such quantities. It appears that they are with the exception of one or two of the largest, of the finest material, and equal in every way to the best Brazilian stones. I asked them if they would buy them, but they said that that was beyond their power to do so, and recommended to us to sell by degrees, for fear we should flood the market. They offer, however, a 180,000 for a small portion of them. You must come home, Quartermain, and see about these things, especially if you insist upon making the magnificent present of the third share, which does not belong to me, to my brother George. As for good, he is no good. His time is too much occupied in shaving and other matters connected with the vain adorning of the body. But I think he's still down on his luck about Fulata. He told me that since he'd been home, he hadn't seen a woman to touch her, either as regards her figure or the sweetness of her expression. I want you to come home, my dear old comrade, and buy a place near here. You have done your day's work, and have lots of money now, and there's a place for sale quite close which would suit you admirably. Do come, the sooner the better. You can finish writing the story of your adventures on board ship. We have refused to sell the story till it's written by you, for fear that we shall not be believed. If you start on receipt of this, you will reach here by Christmas, and I book you to stay with me for that. Good is coming, and George, and so, by the way, is your boy Harry. Now there's a bribe for you. I've had him down for a week's shooting. I like him. He's a cool young hand. He shot me in the leg, cut out the pellets, and then remarked upon the advantage of having a medical student in every shooting party. Goodbye, old boy. I can't say any more, but I know that you will come, if only to oblige. Your sincere friend, Henry Curtis. P.S. The tusks of the great bull that killed poor Kiva have now been put up in the hall here, over the pair of buffalo horns you gave me, and look magnificent, and the axe with which I chopped off Twala's head is stuck up over my writing table. I wish we could have managed to bring away the coats of chain armor. H.C. Well, reader, today is Tuesday. There's a steamer going on Friday, and I really think I must take Curtis at his word and sail by her for England, if it is only to see my boy Harry 
"'and look after the printing of this history, "'which is a task I do not like to trust to anybody else.'" Inspired by Treasure Island, Ryder Haggard published King Solomon's Mines in 1885, and it still remains unsurpassed as a full-blooded adventure story. I sure hope you all enjoyed it. Apple listeners, please send us a review for 1001 Stories for the Road, of which this one certainly is a great one. H. Ryder Haggard, King Solomon's Mines. This is your host, John Hagedorn. This has been a great adventure, and we'll see you again soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.